and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show, when home births require a transfer to hospital and why it's midwives who are the ones being left behind. And when I first started going to conferences, I had um, small children, I had responsibilities at home, and I'd go to conferences and I'd go, oh, I've got a week where my headspace is my own. Nobody else owns that headspace but me. The mental health benefits of a conference? Yeah, that's a bit later. But today I thought we'd start the show with a good old music chat. Uh, I'm a guitar player. Mm. I'm familiar with Les Pauls, 335s, Fender Strats, uh, the, the works. Right. Mesa Boogie amplifiers. Your dad will know about this. You probably don't. <laughs> Speak to him about it. my head. <laughs> this is Gordon. Uh, okay, Jake, my name is Gordon Sullivan. I am a musician. Gordon's career as a musician dates more than 30 years back. What music? I was playing funk and soul and a bit of jazz elements of rock as well so it was a bit of a cross-section of the whole thing he's originally from london but back in 84 came to australia to give the aussie music scene a go but when i came to australia it was mainly a rock and roll type of situation i'll drop a couple of names here i immediately met a player we're just going to pick up some mail or something and i bumped into him he says man i've got a gig for you why don't you come and play so we started off with a band called Deck Chase Overboard. Played through, do all the gigs up and down Australia and so on, uh, up the coast. Then a bunch of guys called Ganga Jang saw me playing in uh, a venue called the Bombay Rock. Uh, bass player came and said, do you want to come and do some stuff with us? So I said, yeah, fair, fair enough. So I went in, did some recordings with them. Of course, then they started to have the hits and we went on tour. But while Gordon was picking up some momentum on the Aussie music scene, he ran into a problem. A problem that made playing the guitar increasingly difficult. Do you remember the first time that it kind of happened to you? Yeah. Um, and what happened? I I was playing and I, I found that this finger was was wanting to just pull strings down. It was the uh, the pinky that had the problem, and of course that would want to lock up, and in fact would bring the fourth finger down with it. So it just kind of like falls back into your palm. Yeah, it wants to do that. It just wants to grip, and it would throw the guitar out of tune because it would just hang onto the string and just pull it down. Did you think much of it at the time? No, not much. I thought uh, something that will probably disappear. So you didn't... What, what did you think it was? Or you just... I, I had no idea. And even the medical people that I went and saw had no idea. 
Gordon had and still has something called musician's dystonia, also known as musician's cramp. It's a neurological movement disorder where messages from the brain to, in Gordon's case, his left hand, don't work properly. Instead of getting his fourth finger and pinky to help pluck the strings on his guitar, they freeze and they contract downwards. After playing the guitar for more than 35 years professionally, it was only 10 years ago that Gordon even learnt the word dystonia. So how does that affect your play? I learnt to play with just the three fingers, with the thumb, the first and the the second. Um, Did it piss you off? Oh, it freaked me out. I had to change careers. I had to just stop playing music because I wasn't having fun playing. And as any musician would know, if you're not having fun playing music, go and do a day gig, mate, because that's the only option you have. Otherwise, the music becomes a chore. And that's not the point of playing music. Gordon's musician cramps is just one type of dystonia. A typical dystonia is that of the neck, also called cervical dystonia, which is similar to what Gordon experiences in his hand. The continual contracting of the muscles will cause them to freeze, lock into place, and result in abnormal fixed postures. It can be hugely debilitating and is also incurable. But according to Alana McCambridge from the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, there are some ways to manage it, but they're not all ideal. The only treatment available for them is Botox. Um, So you just... Wow. Uh, so the contracted muscles, they just numb them. Um, and so that works well for some people and they'll just have regular, you know, four monthly Botox cycles. Even if into a musician's finger? Mm-hmm. Really? And then, you know, obviously the muscles um, get weaker and weaker over time and you're not really addressing the underlying issue, which is that the brain's controlling the muscles wrong. You're just addressing that the muscles are contracting. How would that, how I I imagine Botox to restrict movement (laughs) on a superficial sense? It just numbs the muscle so it blocks the transmitters from getting to the muscle so the muscle can't contract anymore. And so if you have having a problem where your muscles overly contracted and then you block the transmission from the nerve to the muscle and then the muscle is just going to go lax. You know, not everyone is happy with that kind of treatment and especially um, for the people that I see with cervical dystonia. So one of the adverse symptoms of having Botox in the muscles around your neck is that when those muscles, you know, loosen, you start to feel like you're choking, which isn't great. So a lot of them don't like, um, don't like that side effect and is why um, they're quite interested in a different method. And that different method is where Alana's work comes in. What does it feel like? Um, so you get a little bit of a tingle and a warm feeling, um, but after 30 seconds or so, the feeling, you just get used to it. Alana's research is looking at transcranial magnetic stimulation for those with dystonia. And essentially what this is, it's sending a weak current through the brain to test for muscle abnormalities. It's a non-invasive electrical technology. However, in the past, has been used in other ways people would put electric fish on people's heads and then they fish. noticed that, yeah, um, the scientists recorded that 
people's depression improved, like, you know, melancholy is what they called it back then. Um, fish? Yeah, electric fish. What's <laughs> Oh, like an electric eel or something. Yeah, yeah. Really? And they would put it on people and as a treatment. <laughs> and then, so scientists continued to um, explore, you know, electrical therapy. What will happen is rubber electrodes wrapped in a sponge and placed in saline will be placed around the head, an anode on the back of the head and a cathode on the cheek. What this will do is send little signals through the brain to the targeted part of the body, like the neck or hand, and try to get them up and running. This type of treatment is still in experimental stages and is yet to be perfected. But Alana thinks that TMS, alongside other physiotherapies which help dystonia sufferers to cut down on repetitive movements, is key. Because it's these repetitive movements which seem to be one of the main causes of dystonia. You know, what we try to do is you try and break that movement pattern and have them practice a different movement pattern um, so that, you know, they're not constantly reinforcing their bad pattern. For someone like Gordon, whose livelihood is dependent on his hands and repetitive movements, plucking the guitar strings, dancing around the frets, stroking back and forth with the guitar pick, to get him to completely change the way he moves and the way he plays seems pretty much impossible. But what he can do is look at signs early and become aware of when his hands might be tensing up. Do you try and mix up? It's hard, though, I guess, if, you're, if you've been playing guitar in such a way for however many years to try and change that practice and get your brain to think differently. Yes. It's hard. It is. It's, it's extremely difficult. Um, you have to have a lot of self-discipline. And probably, as most musicians would know, they're, they're not the most disciplined people. In general, musicians like to be freer. To, to play and improvise and so on. And if you have this rigid way of thinking, your improvisation is not going to be great. Changes the vibe of performance. Yep, absolutely. Do you feel like that sometimes? Yes. Yep. Uh, if you discipline yourself too much, the, uh, the thought process tends to go into the discipline area um, and the free-flowing information. That's where the thrill, is, thrill comes from. But funnily enough for Gordon, when he's on the stage... No freezing. When I went on stage to start to play, the adrenaline actually got these two fingers working. Right, okay. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. If I was doing something and the adrenaline was there, the fingers would work normally. But if I actually sat down and picked up a guitar, it would immediately start to lock up. And even noticing small things like that gives Gordon the upper hand on his dystonia. <laughs> Think Health will be back after this. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. 
For many women, the idea of a home birth is an attractive one. You're in your own home. You can have more people you trust around you, and also risks of infection are lower than that in hospital. But as far as birth goes, things don't always go according to plan, and women can be told by their midwives that a transfer to hospital could better ensure the birth goes smoothly. However, that transfer to hospital also presents some issues, making sure it's done quickly and efficiently, but also changeover in care. During delivery, private midwives can be stripped of their duties and replaced with other midwives who work in the hospital. Deborah Fox from the Centre for Midwifery, Child and Family Health at the University of Technology Sydney conducted her thesis on intrapartum care transfer, care during labour, from home to hospital, and addressed how this transfer needs to be smoother. So I was looking at the women who all was going well、um, until after the start of their labour. So the decision-making process was an interesting one. Usually, the midwife in attendance might suggest that there's a possibility that if the labour continues to move slowly, or if certain clinical things continue to occur, that it might be necessary to consider a transfer. This was important because women who'd planned to give birth at home needed time to process. Changing expectations for their birth. So, in the event of an emergency, and I only actually interviewed one woman who was in an emergency situation. But in in those situations, everyone's very focused on just the physical safety of the mother and the baby, and so that's the focus, and everybody has the same goal. When the, the situation is not an emergency, often women can really want to try to stay at home, and because this is because they've had such Emotional investment, I guess, in the idea of giving birth at home, and so they need a bit of time to process that. Midwives would often suggest that it might be possible, and over a period of a few hours, it might become more evident that a transfer is going to be necessary, and then the midwife would put that into action. Or alternatively, things might turn around, and the baby might be born, and then the necessity is not there anymore. Does that mean, in some cases, deciding whether or not to move from home to hospital can that be can that be a tough decision? And sometimes, it, it, is that a difficult transfer? I didn't interview any women for whom that was difficult, but I did interview midwives who'd had experiences with women who had found it very difficult and had reserved their right to decline the midwife's recommendation. That can be difficult for midwives because they have a responsibility to continue to care for the woman in the full knowledge that really she should be in hospital, and no one can force a woman to go to hospital. It's her right to birth wherever she chooses, but for a midwife, sometimes it can be a case of feeling that、uh, really would be safer for her to be in hospital, physically, medically safer for her to be in hospital. But as I said, the women I interviewed. They trusted their midwives to suggest transfer when it was necessary, and they trusted their midwives not to suggest transfer unless it was necessary. This might seem like a bit of a silly question, but in terms of the actual transfer itself, how are they being transported to the hospital, and then once they get there, where are they going? Is it as if anybody else were to come in the hospital who's gone into labour, they then go into a certain part of the hospital and then are looked after? What what's that actual process that's happening, moving it, someone from home to hospital? 
Good question. Probably most times the women would just go in the car with their partner or support person, which would, means it's really just the same as anybody who goes into labour and, and says, okay, it's time to go to hospital to give birth. If there's some reason why the woman needs to lie down or is not going to be comfortable in the car or there's some risk, some medical risk en route, then an ambulance would be called. So my research was in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania, and it does vary as to whether the midwife goes in the ambulance with the woman or follows the ambulance in her own car. I would say most often the ambulance paramedics preferred to have the midwife in the ambulance. Most often the midwife and the woman preferred that as well. So that's what happened most often. Then they would arrive at the hospital and the home birth midwife would have rung the hospital and made arrangement for the transfer prior to their arrival and they would have been given instructions as to where to go. So most often they went straight through to the birth unit, unlike most ambulance arrivals at a hospital would go through emergency. In a home birth transfer situation, we try to avoid that so we can get the woman straight into the birth unit where she needs to be. And is that why you conducted your thesis or PhD research into this area is to look at how best that transfer can occur, um, how quickly, how efficiently? The aim of my research was just to explore the experiences um, of the women and the obstetricians and the midwives. So I didn't know at the outset what was going to become the most interesting part of the research. But certainly what did become the most interesting part was the interactions in the woman's birthing room in the hospital. Midwives who were caring for the women at home during labour and who had been the woman's primary carer since the beginning of her pregnancy, in all the cases in my research, had no clinical rights to practice in the hospital. Now, this has recently changed. Just the other day, Westmead Hospital has begun welcoming privately practising midwives uh, into their hospital as, as the woman's primary carer, which is a wonderful advance in maternity care. And this is also happening in parts of Queensland and Victoria and elsewhere, just starting to become standard. But in my research, my interviews were in 2014 and 2015, and none of the midwives were able to continue practising as the woman's primary caregiver once she reached the hospital. So when the midwife arrives at the hospital with the woman, she has to give the hospital a handover. However, she has no clinical rights or responsibilities. She becomes just like any support person or family member. She can stay as, as a support person but not perform any midwifery duties or have any part in clinical decision-making. And this is really mostly around insurance issues. The hospital will want to take over complete responsibility because they need their staff to take responsibility for insurance reasons. And so in many instances, the hospital was very welcoming and respectful towards the home birth midwife, but in quite a few instances, they were not. And the really interesting interactions were between hospital midwives. The problem most often was that they perceived the woman was only interested in what her home birth midwife had to say. She was looking to her home birth midwife all the time. The difficulty is that the woman has had this relationship with her home birth midwife for her whole pregnancy. She's the midwife she trusts. She's just been transferred into hospital 
into a strange environment with a lot of unfamiliar caregivers, and of course she's going to look to her trusted midwife. This is where the problem began, and a lot of hospital midwives really would have preferred the home birth midwife to go away. The hospital midwives that found this process more easy and the interactions went smoothly were the ones who were able to say, okay, I understand the power of their relationship. I'm just going to step back and I take full clinical responsibility, but I'm going to incorporate this relationship that's so important to the woman into the care that I'm providing. And it was those transfers that went extremely well. Deborah Fox from the Centre for Midwifery, Child and Family Health in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Attending a conference, although not compulsory, is an important part of building an academic's network and, two, potentially their portfolio. However, would you have ever imagined that attending a five-day streak of lectures and panel discussions would improve your mental health? Deborah Edwards and Carmel Foley from the University of Technology Sydney Business School are looking into this, and I started by asking them if they were both fans of a good old conference. Absolutely. Definitely, yes. (laughs) And why? When you're in the early career stage, I remember it well. It's so exciting to go to conferences and so exciting to look at the program and work out which papers you're going to go and listen to because they all look so amazing. But what we've discovered recently is that if you go to a conference in a new field, a field that you haven't kind of grown up in, you can get that same excitement all over again. Often conferences can be incremental in their knowledge development and it's probably sometimes it's not until you're outside your normal field that you get some of the bigger aha moments or things that um, can excite you about your own area. A, A book that Carmel and I are writing, one of the stories in there is about Mary Bebaway, who is at UTS here. You know, she was in a, at a conference and she does research into cancer, but she was sitting in on a talk about malaria and she went, ah, oh, maybe I could use that in my research. And that stimulated for her a whole area of research for which she is now leading the field in understanding when cancer is going to reoccur before it's even reoccurred. Mm. So another person in our story, you know, met someone at the conference, then they went and visited them at another university and that put them on a whole other path. And then at the end of that, they came up with a vaccine or a cure for ulcers or cervical cancer. And why are you looking at this area? Why are you looking at conferences and the benefits? Long story. (laughs) Conferences were valued by governments and so forth for the tourism dollars that they generate. And how do they generate those dollars normally? Well, it's because if you hold an international conference in Sydney, you get an influx of international delegates, tourists who come here and spend money on hotel rooms and food and attractions and you get new money into the economy, which the, the government loves. We know conferences do much more than just bring in tourism dollars. We would like someone to do a project and try and find out the scope of contributions that conferences make. So that was our first project. And so we 
built five case studies around five very different conferences. I think there was a women's sport conference, there was a dental conference, an AIDS conference, a labor law conference, and we found definitely that the scope of contributions was much, much broader and probably much more important than those tourism dollars. And what were those contributions? What were you finding? Well, things like practitioners may go to the conference and they might learn things right on the spot and then go back into their workplaces, like a dental conference. So the dentists go there, they learn about new techniques, new methods, and then they'll go back into their dental surgeries and implement those methods immediately. Medical conferences in particular will um, screen operations live so that both doctors and the practitioners, etc., are learning at the conference itself and they'll take that back in. And then there are the other things such as the networking and the relationships that are formed and then research groups are developed out of that, um, research connections, you know, might stimulate somebody's research in a particular direction that ultimately leads to, you know, amazing societal outcomes. Um, When we looked at the AIDS conference, one of the brilliant things came out of the AIDS conference by bringing an international community together with all their knowledge and experience on trying to beat the AIDS virus and everyone sharing their knowledge and it was able to move the agenda forward. I guess to continue on that health angle, subtle mental health benefits too, not only in kind of reinvigorating one's sense of motivation, but also you'd mentioned like networking, like friendships develop, Mm. sense of well-being goes up. Did you find that too? Mm -hmm. Definitely. And so when we did the first survey, questionnaire survey, we asked all the kinds of businessy questions, I guess, um, about, you know, conferences like is it helping your work and that kind of thing. And we were really surprised that open-ended kind of qualitative, like, is there anything else you want to say? So many people said conferences are also about friendship. Really? So we we hadn't, that was just not the topic that we were on at all, but they pushed back and they, you know, they said they were really letting us know conferences are about friendship. It's about making new friends, meeting new friends. It's about catching up with old friends and reaffirming those friendships. And for, you know, communities of scholars, if you've got in your own institution, you might not have that many people who are so focused on a particular area of your field of studies, Um, but you've got international colleagues who you meet once a year probably at at the international conference who are, you know, really with you on your particular passions. But do you know what? When I first started going to conferences, I had um, small children, I had responsibilities at home, and I'd go to conferences and I'd go, oh, I've got a week where... My headspace is my own. Nobody else owns that headspace but me. Whereas when you're at home, you've got your work, you've got your family, you've got your children. So so you're constantly battling all these things. But when you're at a conference, you can just focus on something that you're truly passionate in. What do you then do with this? Our uh, research is being used by the industry sector. I think we could say that we're leading this space globally. Our industry partner uses it to make arguments to government for funding, for support for the sector. We just both have been to IMEX, which is the largest international meeting exchange forum in the world. Because of the research we've been doing, they've put it on to the politicians page. So politicians come to this forum and they discuss the sorts of outcomes that we're talking about. 
you know, using that information to fine-tune and to try and enhance and provide a better conference experience so that some of these benefits can occur. Deborah Edwards and Carmel Foley from the University of Technology Sydney Business School. Thanks for listening to Think Health. That is all we have time for this week. If you like the program, make sure to subscribe to us, jump on iTunes or your favourite podcast app and just search for Think Health. Also, while you're there, leave us a review. It really does help us get discovered. This show is made possible by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next week.